0: You're listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can visit us online at covenantchurch.us. God is a righteous judge who will one day judge all of mankind. This message is from part one of our series, The Judge, the second installment of our book study on Romans, where we are focusing on the goodness of Jesus, the one who absorbed all of God's wrath at once for all men. And now here's our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport. I just get too excited. I just get like really excited when we sing about God, you know what I mean? When we just sing about the fact that we worship a God who, who is just completely all powerful, who loves us. There's nobody stronger than our God. And, And we get to sing about him and he knows us. He knows your name. Sit around the front row. He knows you sitting all the way in the back because you don't want to sit in the front. He knows you too, maybe a little more. He knows you. He knows us. He's all powerful. Man, I love that. I love that. All right, i got to preach. We're going to jump right in today. Romans chapter 2, if you would, just remain standing. Uh, Starting in verse 1, we're going to put the scripture up on the screen. If you're joining us um, via podcast, don't look this up on your Bible. Just drive and Listen. Uh, For those of us, you can pull out your Bibles, you can pull out your phones, or just like I said, look up on the screen for Romans chapter two. It says this starting in verse one, therefore you have no excuse. Would you read that with me? Therefore you have no excuse. Last week we were reading through Romans chapter one, finishing it up, and uh, Paul says, therefore they, they were without excuse. And then this week we jumped into chapter two, and we see that Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse. He goes on to say, O man and woman, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, look at this now, is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse six, he will render to each one, according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. What a faithful promise. The Jew first and also the Greek. And finally, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Like I said last week, we finished up our series called The Departed, where we were walking through Romans 1. This week, we're starting a brand new series called The Judge. Um, and, And I do realize that last month was a little heavy, if I can say that, right? Little, little, little weighty, little, little theological. Um, and, uh, yeah. So thankfully in chapter two, Paul gives us a little bit of an intermission. There's some good stuff happening here and I want you to be encouraged There's some challenging stuff too, but uh, I think we could all use a little bit of encouragement today. Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be that time of year in the Buckeye state where it gets a little bit gray. Um, You know, and uh, sometimes our Buckeyes, you know, they might might pull out the wind, but it's just by a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know even God's team struggles some days, right? Okay. So, uh, yeah, I want you to turn to your neighbor as you find your seat. Turn to two or three people and say, be encouraged today. Be encouraged today. All right. So when we begin in chapter two of uh, Romans, the first thing that we have to really realize is it's just a continuation of the first chapter. Now this shouldn't be any kind of you know uh, news because usually second chapters do come after first and they're a continuation. But but like I mentioned uh, earlier. Paul says something very interesting. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. Would you say that with me? You have no excuse. Yeah, whereas previously in the first chapter, he says, therefore, they are without excuse. So we know who the they are, but now we have to identify who the you are. Well, Paul is specifically talking to uh, Christians, people who believe themselves to be Christians, Christ followers, namely, he's speaking to the church. Which makes what he's about to say even stranger. Um, So we're going to jump right into this in verse one. First off, I want to know are you with me this morning? Do you show up? Yeah. You show up with a little bit of expectancy, expecting God to do something in your life today? Yeah? Yes? Okay. I hope so. Here we go. Verse one says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Remember, talking to the church. Because you, the judge, you can sense the sarcasm in his voice there, you, the judge, Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and do them yourself, that you will escape the punishment of God? So Paul is talking, he's speaking to his church, but he's also speaking to a specific group of people inside of his church, inside of the church. He's speaking to a group called hypocrites. Turn to your neighbor and say, you hypocrite got kind of awkward for some of you husbands and wives there, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, whether you know this or not, maybe you're new to church. Maybe it's your first time here. If so, we're glad to have you. Um, but this may shock you a little bit. But, but I have heard that some churches, now not us, not, of course not covenant. But some churches have people inside of them that would be classified as hypocrites. Isn't that crazy? And so back in Paul's day, a long time ago, he was wrestling with a lot of the same things that we wrestle with today inside of our churches. Now, a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another thing. So to be honest with you, we're all hypocrites to some degree, right? But Paul is talking about something completely different. He's talking about people who judge, quote, sinners. People from within of a church who, who 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 judge, quote, sinners, and then turn around and do the very same thing. Now, just an observation from me, and I could be wrong, um, but, I, but I found something to be very unique about Christian culture. Now, first off, Christian culture can be quite weird. Amen? Are you with me on that? Yeah? Um, pick up any... <laughs> Uh, album between the year 1981 and 1993, and you know albums are what they used to call. See, yeah, you get my point. They used to play music on them, and um, and you'll understand that the Christian culture can be kind of strange. It can be kind of backwards. Maybe if you're new to church, there's a whole new lingo like Christianese that you have to learn. You're like, do I sign up for that course somewhere? Like, how do I? No, just show up to church for like a billion years, and you'll figure out how to talk like everybody. Okay, um, but I, I've noticed something deviant about Christian culture, and I wonder if you'd agree. Uh, Something that happens in Christian circles today is I feel like there seems to be a culture of justified hatred. I wonder if you'd agree with me on that. That there's a culture of justified hatred. Now, namely, towards people who aren't of us. Namely, quote, sinners. We're we're justified, maybe, it sounds like, or we act like, we're justified um, uh, hating those types of people. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like I wonder if sometimes Christian take, Christians take joy in the fact that one day people who don't know Jesus are going to be separated from Jesus in eternity. Like do you take joy in that fact? Like do you take joy in the fact that one day your enemies who don't know God will, will be in hell and you look forward like finally they're getting what they deserve. Finally. Finally, all the good people, all of us good guys, will be up in heaven. All the bad people, they will be somewhere else, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But listen, Paul is saying in this passage that heaven isn't filled with good people. You understand that? Heaven, apparently, isn't filled with good people. Heaven is filled with saved people. There's a big distinction there, a big difference, rather, I mean. Heaven isn't filled with good people. Heaven is filled with saved people. Understand, you will not get to, you will not be in heaven based on your works. Amen, are you with me? You will not be in heaven based on uh, how good you live. You will be in heaven based on the grace of God and his love and your submission to Jesus Christ. That's, that's how you will be in heaven. You will be in heaven based on God's love for you. Now, 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 get this. We would say yes to that. You amen to that. I heard a subtle clap somewhere on the top right hand corner. Um, so we would say that. But here, here's something that's interesting. The same love that God has for you, the same grace that God offers to you, he, he also offers to everyone in the world. That same love, that same grace, he offers it to everyone <laughs> In the world, and Paul is stating here that there is no difference between you, between us, and them. There is no difference between us and them. There is, in effect, humanity. There is, in effect, people. Do you understand what I'm saying? None of us are worthy of God's grace. It's not like you're any more worthy than anyone else. None of us are worthy of God's grace. None of us are worthy of of God's affection. None of us are worthy of, of God's redemption. So what Paul is saying is this. Stop acting like you're better than everybody else. What would our world be like if Christians stopped acting like they were better than everybody else? It'd be kind of a weird place to live, wouldn't it? I wonder if it'd be a better place to live. Christians are known for being hypocrites. Christians are known for telling everybody, uh, you know, telling certain groups of people that they are wrong, that they are sinful, that God hates them, right? This is what a lot of times Christians are known for, And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, man, you're not better, you're just forgiven, you're not better. You're just forgiven. Now, I'm not saying that you're not changed. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence in you. I'm just saying like a non-believer has sin, and a believer also sins. Now, don't play like you don't sin anymore. Okay? Well, the moment that I accepted Jesus, I went home. And from that moment forth, I never sinned again. You just lied twice right now. You're full of pride and you're a liar. You know what I'm saying? Like you sin. The only difference is one of the main differences is that your sin has been paid for and bought by Jesus Christ. It's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the moment that you start acting like you are more worthy of God's love based on who you are, what you do, how you act, you are a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Do I need to remind you? Do I need to remind you that, that, that salvation is not based on our works? Do I need to remind you that God's love is not based on how good you are? Do I need to remind you of, of one of the most famous passages in scripture, John three sixteen? I don't know how many times I've seen that, uh, that scripture hung up over a field goal post. You know what I'm talking about? In a football game, just the dude with the weird afro holding up John three 16. You know what I'm talking about? But we know this verse, in fact, say it with me. It says, for God. Now stop, stop. That's a good point right there. For God so loved. It isn't isn't it interesting it says, for God so loved? It's one thing to say, I love that. It's another thing to say, I so love that. I so love that. Hanging out with my kids and trying to pick out. Uh, they're trying to pick out what costume they're going to, to wear to this trunk-or-treat or to trick-or-treating or whatever. And, and keep in mind, I did tell you before, like, I was only allowed to ever dress up as a Bible character for Halloween. I did tell you that, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're trying to extend that a little bit in our break the chains and uh, extend that a little bit in our family. So my son, Noah, he's nine. He's awesome. He wants to go as a dude from Star Wars. And this specific dude has a gigantic gun Okay? And that would be really great if the gun wasn't really crazy expensive. So the costume's like $12. The gun's like 85 Okay? And so he shows me this costume. I'm like, perfect, man. That's in my budget. $12. Perfect, right? Because we got like 40 kids, so it adds up. <laughs> and so he's like, I want to be this guy so bad, Dad. I'm like, okay, very cool. Let's do it. And then he's like, okay, but i got to buy a blaster. I've got to buy a gun. Okay, you know, we got a lot of Nerf guns. We can spray paint those things, you know. He's like, no, 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 no. And so I, he, he shows me this gun, literally like $75. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. You're going to use that once, leave it in the rain, and, you know. And, um, and so I find a blaster that's $3, <laughs> and, and I show that to him. And I'm like, look, this looks the same. He's like, that doesn't look anything like it. Yeah, that's nice, Ted, but I so want this one. I so want it. For God so loved the world. It's not just that he loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He loved the world. The depraved, evil, God-hating, sin-loving, self-centered people who would end up killing his own son. God loved them. He so loved them. And he still loves them to this day, so when we look at the people in this world and the craziness of this world, it should spur us into listen now. It should spur us into a deeper sense of thankfulness that God has called us out of it. Amen. Well, when we look at the craziness of this world, and uh, it should spur us into a deeper appreciation of His grace. But the one thing it should not spur us into is hypocrisy. A greater understanding of God's love and God's goodness and who he is and what he saved us from should never spur us into hypocrisy. I always find it interesting when I have these conversations with people who tell me they're not allowed inside of churches. You ever, had a con- you ever invite somebody to church and they tell you, I don't think I can go with you? Why? Because I don't think I'm one of them. Man, I'm the pastor, man. You can come with me. It's okay. No, nah, dude, I've been to church before. People told me I wasn't welcome. I'm like, well, what did you do there? I just showed up. I was talking with my friend the other day. He's a church planter now, but he accepted Christ at a younger age. And uh, he was in junior high, high school, somewhere around there. And and he came out of a very rough background. He met Jesus. And and he's like, I got to tell all my friends, I got to bring my friends to Jesus. I got to bring my friends. I got to bring my friends. So he got about three or four of his buddies. They went to to church. And people met him at the door and said, You can come in, but they're not allowed in here. And I'm like, he's like, Excuse me? They're not, allowed, they're not allowed. Look at the way they look, man. You can't bring those people in here. This is the house of God. Can you imagine that? Not allowing people inside your church. Like we're, like we're surprised when somebody acts like they don't know Jesus when they don't know Jesus. The outrage from the Christian community over what people who don't know Jesus do—I just can't believe what Scripture tells us that without Jesus we're lost, that we're fully depraved. Yes, it should break our hearts, and yes, but but man, that's not the time that we say like, "Well, now you are not welcome here. You are not wanted here." Can I can I just say like, I can't say that. Um, I mean, I've I've even heard people say like, oh, I can't believe he showed his face this week. I can't believe he showed his face this week. After what he did, "Mm, girl, I'm imitating a lady, okay? (laughs) If you didn't know, I can't believe he showed his face around here. Can I I just say this? Church is a messy place. Church should be a messy place. Amen. You know why church should be a messy place? Because it's filled with messy people. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a messy person. Now, 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 you just got told that. I want you to examine who, you know, they chose to tell you that over the other person they're sitting next to. You know what I'm saying? Now listen to me. Listen to me. Don't miss this. Church should be a messy place because we are a messy people gathered and united under a messy cross. If you ever walk into a church with perfect people singing perfect songs in perfect harmony, living their perfect lives, you need to turn around and run because there are no perfect people. The only perfect person is a man named Jesus Christ. And the only reason he was perfect is because he was the son of God. And even Jesus Christ got messy. Even Jesus Christ got messy, but we don't allow them mess up in our church. Church is messy salvation is bloody. The gospel is beautiful. I think for too long, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. Maybe. I think for too long the church has focused too much on the image and not enough on the pilgrimage. We're focused on the image. We wanna make sure that we look good. We wanna make sure it looks squeaky clean. We wanna make sure that we present ourselves right. Right, we work on the shell. We haven't spent enough time on the pilgrimage. Let me explain. A church should be filled with people on a pilgrimage. A church should be filled with people in motion. A church should be filled with people in transition. People in transition from death to life. People in motion from, from, from sinner to saved. People in, in, in motion from, uh, from, from, from saved to sanctified even. People moving from addicted to free. People moving from broken to whole. From hypocrite to heartfelt to artificial to authentic. And Paul says, when you begin to judge others, your hypocrisy stops the pilgrimage. Your hypocrisy brings an end to the forward motion. You stop the movement. And where there is no movement, there is stagnation. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been told and taught and brought up that no matter how thirsty I am, I should never drink stagnant water. You know why you don't drink stagnant water? Because it's an incubator for all types of bacteria and pesticides and stuff that can lead you to death. You know why you should never step foot in a stagnant church? Because it's filled with bacteria and parasites and all sorts of things that will lead you to death. Jesus says in John chapter 4 to a woman who has multiple husbands doesn't know Jesus is God. Jesus says, I'm going to give you water where you'll never thirst again, and in this water will well up a living spring. Movement, 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 movement. I love that. I love this passage about this woman that he encounters, and he, and he tells her about all this, all this life that should be springing up in her, all this life that should be taking place inside of her when she drinks of the gospel. See, as a church— that is drinking from the gospel, you have to understand that you're drinking from the goodness of God. I have to ask you, are you drinking from the goodness of God? Or are you drinking from the stagnant pool of your own hypocrisy? You wonder why your faith's not alive? When's the last time you've done anything for Jesus Christ? You're drinking from a stagnant pool around stagnant people. You said I didn't think it was based on works. Not based on works. But your faith should lead to works. You got real faith. You should have real works. Movement, 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 movement. Listen to this. Paul says this in verse 4. He says that God's kindness, God's goodness, is meant to lead us to repentance. God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. In other words, I wonder if you'd agree with this. Anything that leads us to repentance is the goodness of God. Anything. Anything that leads us to repentance is the goodness of God. God, let me explain. That time that you hit rock bottom, you lost your job, you didn't know you were going to make it, but you met Jesus, guess what? That was God's goodness. That divorce that you went through rocked your world, sent you into alcohol for years, broken relationships, hurt, but you found your way to Jesus, that's God's goodness. That issue that you're wrestling with, whatever that might be, that's, that's, that's making you depend on Jesus in a way that you never thought that you needed to. Guess what? That's God's goodness, because it's leading to re- repentance. See, we have this twist, and don't, don't miss me now. We have this twisted way of thinking that God's goodness has a dollar bill attached to it, like it's a cash, cash back, like it's a cash advance, rather, like that's God's goodness. God's so good. Really? How much you get this week? Oh, man, I got this. Oh, yeah, you must have tithed a lot then. Oh, yeah, I did. Got a return on my investment. That's God's goodness, right? That God's goodness is is defined by how much worldly success we experience. Listen very carefully. We don't base what we know about God's goodness on our circumstances. We base what we know about God's goodness on the fact that we can even know God's goodness. Let's say that again, because that's good. For goodness sake. We don't base what we know about God's goodness on our circumstances. We base what we know about God's goodness on the fact that we can even know God's goodness. Take a breath. That's God's goodness. You're alive. That's God's goodness. Oh, you're gonna go there? Really? You're gonna go there? I'm alive. Your body is held together by God. That's God's goodness. That's God's goodness. Your wife, the fact that she loves you, that's God's goodness. For some of you, that's God's greatness. (laughs) For some of us, that's God's greatness, right? Your children, God's goodness. Don't define God's goodness by your circumstances. Define God's goodness by his character. God is steady. God is consistent. God is never changing. Scripture tells us in this passage that God is a good judge. He loves you. That's his character. Define God's goodness by himself. Do you really know about God's goodness or do you know your own version of God's goodness? See, here's how you can tell. God's goodness is never meant to lead us into more of us. God's goodness is always meant to lead us into more of him. So if you are experiencing goodness that is not leading you into more of Jesus, it is not goodness that God is sending to you. Don't be naive enough to think that God is the only one who hears your prayers. How many of you know that we have an enemy who will give you good things to keep you from the great thing? How many of you know that sometimes we have an answered prayer that God didn't answer? Hello. The enemy will give you things to keep you from, from God's real goodness. And sometimes, like we, like our enemy has this way of of making God's goodness look bad and making bad things look like they're God's goodness. Good things can look bad and bad things can look good. You don't wanna, you don't wanna do that. Case in point, you've been praying forever, you need more money. You finally got the raise. Finally, life's gonna change. Bump up your living, bump up your house, you get a new house, but now you got this new house, right? It's all cool, but now she's got to go to work even more. And so now nobody's home with the kids ever. So, you know, you don't ever now really get to pastor your family at all. Let me ask you, is that a good thing? I mean, I know that's a nerve. I'm just asking, is that a good thing? Situation after situation, you really have to look and say, is this a good thing? Is this a good thing? Thing. God's goodness is never meant to lead us into more of us. It's always meant to lead us into more of him. He's a good judge. And Paul tells us that he's a judge who judges without partiality. And I say that because God's goodness, now, well, listen now, let me pull your mind out a little bit, okay? Let me stretch your mind a little bit. God's goodness doesn't just extend to Christians. God's goodness not only extends to believers, but also those who don't believe. Like, how so? I'll tell you, it is God's goodness that allows a man to say, I don't believe there's a God. That's God's goodness that gave him the breath, that gave him the mind. It's God's goodness that, that allows someone to hold up their fist and shake it at heaven and curse God. They can do that because of God's goodness. It's God's goodness that allows somebody to live 85, 90 years without knowing Jesus. It's God's goodness because he gave them that breath. It's God's goodness because he gave them that strength. It's God's goodness because he, he gave them that life. Scripture tells us that God desires that all men should come to repentance. All men. All people should come to full repentance. So why does God extend his goodness to all the world? I'm So glad you asked. God extends his goodness to all the world because God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. So God will strive with an unbeliever, day after day after day, allowing them to take a breath that they don't deserve, allowing them to live a life that they don't deserve, hoping, going after them, striving with them, um, wanting them to, at some point in their life, realize, like, I don't deserve this. This is goodness that I don't deserve. Where is this coming from? And then a switch flips, and they realize this is God. This is God's goodness, and it draws them. It leads them to repentance that their very lives are a gift from him. Are you with me? Are you with me? All right, here's where it gets better. Notice what else Paul says here, verse 5. Look at this. Look at this, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Say the word wrath. wrath. Always fun to preach on, right? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the day of judgment. The day when each one of us will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. Every one of us is storing up wrath for that day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his Works. Let me read it again. Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what I want you to picture. I'm going to try to explain this because it's it's it can be kind of difficult, honestly. So I want to kind of explain this in a way that at least I understand. Maybe it'll translate. I want you to think of of a um, of, of a dam. Okay. So so think of uh, like the Hoover Dam across the Colorado River the world's largest one of the world's largest dams, right I want you to picture that now on one side there's you know there's nothing and on the other side there's there's a lot of water miles and miles and miles backed up in all the coves and caves and and uh, you know all the little crevices it's just backed up it's penetrated through everything. This is a picture of the wrath of God like how well let me get there okay um, the very first time that a sin was was committed. The wrath of God was stored up against that sin. Okay, you follow? Every sin that is committed, the wrath of, it's like another drop in in this river. And so for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the wrath of God has been piling up. The only thing that holds it, this dam right here, is the goodness of God. That's the thing that holds it back from from falling on you, from falling on, on me. And so here's the issue, because sometimes we can look around at this world and we're like, where is God in this world? I mean, we got people dying for what they believe, not only across the sea, but now in our own country. People being shot. Racial divide. Inequality. We had this illusion 5K event where we were trying to raise awareness and funds about modern slavery, which is affecting millions of people. We look and we say, where is God? I mean, do you ever wonder that? Where is God in this? If God is so good, what, what is he like turning a blind eye to sin? Does he tolerate sin? No, listen. God's not tolerating sin. He's allowing it to pile up. He's storing up his wrath. There will come a day when that goodness, when that patience is removed and that stored up wrath will be let loose like a torrent. You understand that? And so I want you to picture yourself standing alone in front of the Hoover Dam and all of a sudden this wall is removed. What would you be able to do to defend yourself? Nothing. You are helpless, you are swallowed up by the water. Equally, you will be swallowed up by the wrath that has been stored up that you have contributed to. That's the wrath of God. It's terrifying. Utterly terrifying. An all-powerful God unleashing what Scripture says, His fury. That's not somewhere you want to be. Not something you want to mess with. But listen, this is good. There is hope, is there not? I said, there is hope, is there not? What's hope's name? Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I want you to listen even closer, because some of y'all are like, okay, we're wrapping up, going to the invitation, we're good. No, you don't know what I'm doing, so just be quiet, all right? So listen, I was reading through this, studying, and uh, man, I feel like God, like, blew my mind on this check some stuff, make sure it was accurate, make sure it was good. And I think maybe you could learn as well. And this this is awesome. This is great. Listen, and don't like tune out two sentences in. Hang with me to the end. Can you agree? Yes? You with me? Okay. Um, understand this. Uh, I want you to ask yourself this question. How can the death of Jesus on a wooden cross really pay the price for all my sins? Like, what's significant about that? How can the death of one man on a wooden cross, not just pay for my sins, but but the whole world's, and anyone who would accept it, how can his death on a cross really do that? Now listen, listen closely. You have to understand, we are not saved from our sins because Jesus was falsely accused by men and sentenced to death. We're not saved from our sins because Jesus had nails thrust into, his, thrust into his hands and feet by Roman persecutors. We're not saved from our sins by all the things that people love to glamorize about the crucifixion. We're not saved by those things. We're not saved because a crown of thorns was pushed down on his head and a spear shoved in his side. This is not what saves us. This is not what saves us. And furthermore, this is not what Jesus was praying about in the garden. If you remember, Jesus is agonizing in the garden. He's praying so hard that, 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 that sweat is, is, is dripping from his brow. These are not the things that Jesus was agonizing about in the garden. It wasn't because he was afraid of the cross. You understand that? Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. If it be your will, Jesus speaking to God, he says, let this cup pass from me. I want you to know Jesus wasn't agonizing in prayer because he was scared of of the cross. Jesus wasn't scared of taking the nails. And in fact, I would say this. There are people who have been killed for Christ, killed for their faith in much more brutal ways than even Jesus. People who have been crucified and set fire. People who have been skinned alive. Are they more courageous than Jesus? No, 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 no. no. That's not what Jesus was in agony about. Notice what he says. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. That cup that Jesus is referring to is not talking about a wooden cross or a Roman nail. Search the Old Testament. What do you see? Isaiah chapter 51 talks about the cup that we drink that is full of God's what? Wrath. Read through Jeremiah chapter 25, focus on verse 15, and it talks about the cup that is filled with the wine of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, a cup filled with the fury of God's wrath. The picture we have in Scripture is a cup Filled with the wrath of God the fury of God what saves us is not the nails that they put in Jesus's hands and feet what saves us is not the crown of thorns that they pushed down on his head what saves us is when the wrath of Almighty God was thrust onto Jesus Christ I've heard preachers talk about the fact that God looked away from Jesus God looked away, and the reason that he looked away, I've heard often preached, is because they couldn't stand to watch the Romans persecute his own son. That's not the reason why God turned away. You know the reason that God turned away from his son? Because he saw your sin and my sin on his son. That's why. Why? and all the righteous and holy anger of sin due towards you as a sinner and me as a sinner was all of a sudden, in this moment, poured out on his one and only Son. We are saved because of the cross that Jesus took. On the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath. That's why we're saved. And listen, notice what Jesus does. Tell me how bad Jesus is. Jesus drinks this cup of wrath till every last drop is gone, tips the cup over and then looks up and says, it's finished. It is finished. There's nothing else. There's nothing else to pour out. I have paid for every sin. And then he dies and he comes back to life just to show how awesome he is. Some of you you're struggling with sin, struggling with with God, you're struggling with circumstances. I don't know what it is you're struggling with. You walk in here and you're a mess. I mean, let's just keep it real, you're a mess. Some of the most put together people are the most messy people on the inside. You got chaos, you got depression, you got anxiety, you got broken relationships. Some of you in here this morning, you look all put together, your marriage is on the brink of falling apart. Some of you got kids caught up in, I'm just saying, And let's not jump over, it. let's just jump over here. Some of you, you're not spending any time in God's Word. Some of you, you're doubting that you even know God because when's the last time you even heard His voice? You can't even pray. What do you pray? How do you pray? we got people all across the board. Right? It's because church is a messy place, filled with messy people, and worship under a messy cross from a perfect Savior. you for listening to this message from our series The Judge at Covenant Church. We hope you've been impacted by what you've heard today. Visit us online at covenantchurch.us for more information and to listen to more impactful sermon audios just like this.